Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am excited to be here with Penazal Machado. Penazal is Associate Professor in the Department of Informatics, as well as Head of the Computational Design and Visualization Lab in the Center for Informatics at the University of Coimbra. Penazal, welcome to the Twomo AI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm delighted to be here. Hey, I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation, and we've got lots of exciting stuff to talk about. But let's get started by having you share a little bit about your background and your journey into AI. How did you first get into artificial intelligence? Well, it was actually from a very young age, which may seem odd, and it's kind of odd now that I think about it. But basically, I think it all happened when I got my first computer. This was a ZX Spectrum from Sinclair Computing. I got it. I was about... 12 or 13 at the time. Of course, I I do remember this a a lot because it was a fascinating device, really a life-changing event because entirely different device than anything that I've uh, saw before and you could do anything, at least in my mind with it. You could program it, you could create new stuff, you could do graphics, okay? Not very good ones, but at the time for me, this, this was amazing. And oddly enough, I got a few books back then about how to build AI on these machines. I coded uh, something a little bit like Lisa and a few variations, start building a game. And at the same time, there were lots of movies that I, I saw. I don't know the exact dates, but I do remember a few ones like 2001, of course. But for instance, Electric Dreams, which is uh, not a very good movie, let's put it like that, from, from the 80s, a little bit cheesy. But it, it shows a very interesting perspective on AI that kind of, of stuck into my mind. And then I eventually went to computer science, did my, my degree, then my master's, and then my PhD, always working uh, on AI. First on case-based reasoning, but then uh, I really uh, specialize uh, in evolutionary computation. That's basically the path with a few twists in between that are not important. Awesome. Awesome. And so you mentioned evolutionary computation. That's one of your research interests. Tell us broadly about the way you think about your, your research and the various things that you're working on. Yeah, I probably work in too many things at the time because <laughs> I, I get bored, uh, A, and s- sometimes I get stuck. And so I change uh, a little bit. And also because I, I get easily distracted. That, that's a lot. Overall, my real long-term goal is about AI. That That's what fascinates me. So that was my starting point and initial drive for, for a career as a researcher. And it still continues to be my key motivation. And oddly enough, it's always about images. I I only realized this uh, a few years ago. The things that interest me the most are images, both uh, as a domain of application, but also as an object uh, of study. So everything that I do can really be traced back into these two components, AI and images. And for instance, just to to give you uh, an example, 
When I was finishing my degree, I found totally by accident this paper, these proceedings of Seagraph and this paper by Carl Sims. It was, the paper is called, this is 1991, I believe. And the paper is something along the lines of artificial evolution for computer graphics. And this is a seminal paper by Carl Sims where he is using evolutionary computation to, to evolve images. And once again, it was one of those wow moments. Uh, that stuff was insane, especially back then. We are talking a long time ago. And he was doing this amazing stuff with images and this idea of evolution and so on. And I, now that, again, just talking to you, I also... I'm fascinated by the figure of Charles Darwin and the voyages and the beagle and, and so on. So this really clicked and say, okay, this is it. This is evolutionary computation. I was uh, working in case-based reasoning at the time and said, oh, no, I'm not into that uh, anymore. So I started specializing in evolutionary computation and using it to evolve images and so on. For instance, now uh, I'm working also on that, but we'll think, uh, working on evolutionary machine learning because I do think that one of the ways of building intelligent agents is through evolutionary computation. So that's one way to achieve our goals. At the same time, I'm working on computational creativity, and that has to do with my personal view uh, on AI. And kind of by accident, basically because I, I met this amazing student, uh, Pedro Miguel Cruz, uh, amazing and talented student. I began working in uh, information visualization. And yes, it does seem a little bit odd, but here's my argument is that information visualization is just another way of augmenting uh, human capabilities, of externalizing, for instance, a memory, you know, using simple stuff, using paper and pencil to do math. It's a form of visualization that expands our cognitive abilities. And the way I look into visualization is pretty much uh, along these lines of a way of augmenting, of expanding our, our cognitive abilities. And that also applies to, to my view towards AI. Is your interest in images and graphics, do you think that that is personality driven or you know an inclination towards the visual or is there an underlying belief about the way we'll get to ai and it being kind of fundamentally a visual thing well, that motivating that well uh both but uh, i would say that it's a matter of personal interest i've always been fascinated uh, by images and uh, for instance, I'm not very good at, at writing, not very good at speaking. Many times to explain an idea, I have to do these charts and figures that nobody really understands, but they make sense to me. So that, that was really my drive originally. I can present the argument that uh, images are the most important things in the world and you know all that stuff. And I do believe there is a strong relation between our senses and what we are, uh, both as human and as intelligent beings. So I also believe there are lots of, uh, for instance, vision and uh, audition are not so different. There are lots of principles that apply to, to both domains. 
So yes, I do strongly believe that they are extremely important for building AI systems, but the initial drivers certainly personal. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about evolutionary computation and you know what that means generally, what that means for you. you know, we've talked a little bit about evolutionary machine learning on the podcast, but it sounds like you came into the topic of applying evolution to computation from a much broader perspective. Yeah, yeah that's true. Well, okay, I'll, I'll go a little bit back. Something controversial for, for, for your postcast. It does pertain with the way I, I see artificial intelligence. And when most people think about artificial intelligence, they think about problem solving, planning, playing, go, optimization, advertisement, you know, all this stuff. And yes, that is certainly very important. Back in our minds, there's also an anthropocentric view of AI where the ultimate goal is sort of imitating the human brain or or something like that. I'm not that interested in humans. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In the sense, okay, I I do feel that imitating humans is not, should not be the goal for, for AI. Um, for several reasons. Uh, The first being we already have plenty of humans. Not all of them are particularly intelligent. They they are intelligent, but they are kind of asymptomatic, like with COVID, so they rarely behave in an intelligent way. And, yeah. uh, I'm trying to pick out which are your controversial views in here. (laughs) Maybe I don't have. (laughs) And so... This doesn't make much sense to me. I, okay, I, I'm exaggerating a little bit. I know that I'm. it's sort of caricature, but there is this fear in the back of my mind that if we imitate humans and if we succeed, then we are probably going to imitate the good things about us, but also the bad things about that. And I do think this makes uh, a little bit sense. So as I was saying before, or as I mentioned before, uh, I'm more interested on building systems that can expand our our abilities and cooperate with us and so on and so forth. At the same time, and I was saying, we focus a lot in all these problem-solving and optimization areas, but if we think about uh, us as human beings, creativity, aesthetic, games, ritualization, art-making, jokes... All these aspects, these are what makes us humans, you know. These are defining characteristics of the human mind. This is what defines us as human beings. Uh, There is quite a literal story about that, but uh, let's move along because I do get a lot distracted. And so if we don't imitate these things, if we don't replicate them in some way in a computer, we will not be able... To, to build systems that are able to relate with us and understand our drives, our intentions, our goals, and so on. So I'm not saying we need to imitate humans, but an artificial agent that is useful for humans to cooperate with us should be able to understand us. And for that, we, we know all of these aspects. So the reason why I was fascinated with evolutionary computation is that it's another form of intelligence. You can argue that evolution is creative in the sense that over the years, the selection of species, survival of the fittest, and all these mechanisms were able to evolve intelligent beings like us. So they create a wide variety of species. Some of them are even intelligent. 
humans included uh, and so forth. So I liked that a lot as a form of inspiration, you know, trying to look at other phenomena, at, at nature and so on, and searching for different forms of inspiration to build AI systems. And now that I did a lot of that pass, why not using also evolution to evolve artificial brains or artificial bodies or artificial systems that are also intelligent? I'm curious. You, you mentioned kind of a, a side note story about the linkage between kind of creativity and humanity. Yeah. Uh, and you said well, you didn't want to go there, but I'm curious. what. Now you want to go there. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not the best to, to tell this story. Actually, I heard about this story by John McCormack, which is an Australian researcher and uh, a dear friend. And you should definitely invite him for this podcast because it's a lot more interesting th than me. And he it, it told me this amazing story that really stuck into my mind. He told me this was in the conference maybe three years ago. It was pre-COVID, so whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Basically, the story goes like this. In Australia, as you probably know, they had uh, historically lots of problems related with racism and so on. And uh, Aboriginal people, I, I believe that's the, the, the right name uh, to say it in English, until very recently, I believe it was the 60s, they were, and this is tricky to explain for a non-native speaker, but I'll try it, they were considered humans, but not persons, meaning that, yes, they were recognized as, as being human beings, but they didn't have rights. So they could not own uh, properties or vote and, and so on and so forth. So uh, in terms of the law, they were not persons uh, as the rest of, of the people. And there was this Aboriginal guy, which he, he became a very famous painter. He, he did paint in a sort of European style uh, because Aboriginal art is amazing, amazing, beautiful, but he was painting in a European style. And he became so well known that eventually the government considered him a person. So this is a very literal demonstration that art makes us persons. And, and I found it, imagine if you really think about it, A, I think it's in the 60s, so it wasn't that long ago. And B, the, the sheer fact of somebody being so good at art that nobody could say this is not a person, I find it fascinating. There is, of course, a, uh, a sad, uh, well, lots of sad notes to, to this story. The, he eventually died, as everybody dies. And his wife, his kids, his family, they were not persons. So they could not inherit uh, the house, the, the goods, uh, and so on. And I think this as is recently, the term is not correct, solved. Uh, of course, this can never be solved, but I, I don't have the proper word in, in English. This was recently, uh, now they they got back uh, their, their inheritance uh, a few years ago, I believe. So that's what I meant. To, and it is a sad story, but that's what I meant, that art is something that is very, very important to us because not even in those circumstances you could deny, and it literally made him a person. Mm -hmm. Interesting story. There's a lot there that I'm going to be is. talking it about is. in the next few days. 
you should check the story with more detail because I probably missed something here, but this was what stuck in my mind and I find it absolutely fascinating. There are lots of uh, other fascinating stories like this. So I think just kind of looping back, I think you're the the couple of arguments you're making are that, you know, creativity, you know, art being an example of that is kind of this fundamental, has this fundamental humanness as exemplified by the story and evolution also. I don't know if it's also as a fundamentally human thing. I mean, it's a, it's a <laughs> evolution is also, I guess, has kind of caught your interest as a way to yeah. evolve, not just how, you know, uh, species have evolved, but as a way, I mean, art evolves. So lots of things uh, follow evolutionary. Yeah, because you can talk about biological evolution, but you can also talk about memes and, and stuff like that, like Dawkins did. So you can look at it in different ways. Of course, there's also this effect. I worked with evolutionary computation for, for a long time. Uh, and then when you get really good at an area, you start thinking, okay, I have a hammer, everything is a nail. So it, there is also that effect. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that to build AI systems, and I'm not talking about, okay, I'm talking about real AI, whatever that means, something general intelligence. Mm -hmm. I do believe we, we do need uh, to, to look a lot more to nature. And in my opinion, you, you only get intelligent beings, artificial or otherwise, if you have, okay, I would say that you need a very rich environment, uh, a very demanding environment you probably need uh, something along the lines of co-evolution, adversarial search uh, or competition and so on, just to drive evolution. Uh, you need to take into account, uh, probably, probably need to take into account physical constraints. For instance, um, this is not a criticism. Actually, it is, but it, 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 it's not that I think we are doing it wrong. I just think we, we need... Uh, other steps. So, for instance, these uh, models like GPT-3 or, or so on, that to train them, you need an insane amount of, of resources. And even to run them, you need an insane amount of resources. And they are still not as clever as us. Uh, I do don't like the, the direct comparison, but they have limitations uh, more than we do or different ones. And they require a huge amount of computational power, a huge amount of energy, and so on. So you are definitely missing something here. And for instance, let's consider our brains. Okay, you cannot, your brain is not fully connected. The neurons are not fully connected. A fully connected layer makes no sense. It would become a it is to a large extent a wiring problem. There is no way of passing all the cables uh, to, to fully connect it. So think about modularity, for instance. Modularity can arise, arguably, from the need uh, to solve this kind of sort of wiring problems. Why? Because you have an area of the brain that specializes in, in some given problem, and then this can be densely connected. But when you try to communicate with another area of the brain, you don't need to pass as many wires let's use this metaphor again so the simple fact of the, that you are adding additional constraints like 
energy requirements, the ability to learn fast, the 3D nature of, of brains, you know, all these things end up creating a pressure towards parsimony. They put also a pressure towards, in my experience, a pressure towards evolving structures that train fast and that use less resources. You can kind of reverse engineer that. And so evolutionary computation can be a, a, a way of reaching uh, general intelligence. Mm -hmm. The other argument is I have no idea of how to construct a brain, but maybe I can evolve it. Uh, so that, that's the short version of this answer. But I do think it, it does make a lot of sense. Then probably you, you also need to revisit and improve uh, some computational models of evolution that tend to be sort of uh, oversimplification of nature. And to be honest, uh, I think we may be missing something there. And this is also one of the things that I'm trying to explore. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I recently mentioned in our newsletter that I'm following this course on the philosophy of science fiction, kind of a huh. audio course. And it prompted me to rewatch The Matrix Mm -hmm. uh, trilogy. Actually, I've only I'd only ever watched the first one and not watched the second or third one because I'd heard that they were not that interesting. Actually, they're really interesting, okay. and you know, in particular, they may be the only sci-fi that I know of that to this degree kind of takes on the idea of evolution of intelligence, evolution of models. Like, I think it's common to think of or at least that I'm familiar with, there's, you know, we talk about kind of artificial intelligence is learning, mm -hmm. but in the second and third matrix, they very um, explicitly talk about, you know, this one, uh, one intelligence evolves and another intelligence evolves mm -hmm. and they combined and they yeah. have another in intelligence to uh, try to address specific failings of the the matrix as a system. Fixing the, we would call that uh, nowadays. Uh, there were adversarial examples, and they were trying to fix it. Yeah, yeah. I, I I've never thought about that. I I'm not sure if it's the only one. I I do believe there is one or two tales by Isaac Asimov that touch those areas. Not entirely certain. I. I do believe, okay, maybe I'm making this up. <laughs> I do believe there is a tale by Asimov where the the computer or the robot, whatever you want to call it, it gets stranded in a planet. So it's it, is she, whatever, uh, is isolated there and starts building other robots and other robots and they start evolving in, in this way. And eventually they, they are isolated from humans and eventually they find uh, a human or vice versa. And uh, they almost violate the laws of robotic because they could not uh, believe that something some, so simple and so basic as us was uh, their creator. Uh, so I, I can't make, be making all of this up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do not purport to be a, a sci-fi aficionado by any stretch of the imagination. And in fact, uh, I was tending to be, I don't know, I, I'm usually influenced by sci-fi. Um, mm -hmm. But 
mostly kind of pop sci-fi and I'm just starting to get into kind of thinking deeply about it and the implications and plan to be to read more on Asimov and, and some of these other authors. Mm-hmm. But I think that, you know, one of the questions that it prompts for me in the context of this conversation is kind of thinking about the relationship between learning and evolution. And maybe one way to state that is a lot of what we talk about or what I've talked about on the the podcast is evolution as a learning strategy. I'm curious more broadly, like how you think about the relationship between those two, but there's when we're using evolution as a learning strategy, it's, it's not the thing that is choosing to evolve itself. Is there research in that direction? You know, what does that look like? Can we get to self-directed evolution like way before we get to AGI or does that need to be? Ah, so, okay. Now, now I got the question. That, that's, that's an excellent question. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> for a moment there, uh, I thought you were going to talk about a life, and 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 that could be uh, a way of, of approaching this. There was uh, a lot of interest in, in a life in the late eighties, early nineties, I believe, and then it kind of uh, the interest uh, diminished. But I, I do think there there is a lot to to be seen there. And answering uh, to your question, I would say that probably uh, having open-ended environment and a challenging one, it's uh, it's probably, I wouldn't say the best, but uh, to me, it appears to be a promising way of building intelligence agents. The challenge would be, and I'm, I'm thinking as I speak, the challenge would be to ensure that that world uh, relates to the real world, what, whatever that means, because we are all living in the matrix. So all of this is, is a simulation anyway. So, but these uh, two realities, not the right word, definitely need to be connected somehow, because otherwise it won't develop the the same sort of intelligence that you we need. I, I'm I'm guessing here. So yeah, and. and Provided that the world is rich enough and you have speciation mechanisms uh, and so on, probably also mating selection mechanisms. That's one of the things that is missing. Well, not entirely missing, but is underappreciated in evolutionary computation because you can make the argument that, and it has been made, uh, the argument that uh, the evolution of intelligence may have been driven by simply by mating choice, which is certainly an interesting uh, argument. So yes, if you can keep up a, a world like this, challenging with lots of competition, with lots of opportunities, and where evolution does give you an evolutionary advantage, because when you think about it, it's not that obvious that being intelligent automatically grants you an evolutionary advantage, because our brains consume a lot of energy and, and and so on. So ants are doing good and they are not particularly clever. Well, the ant colony can be considered clever, but ants individually are not that clever. So maybe uh, intelligence is not necessarily a prerequisite for evolutionary success. Maybe taking a step back or being more concrete, when we when you're talking about evolution from a computation perspective or evolutionary ML, 
is the concept of mating, is that definitional? You know, in distinguishing between evolution as just kind of a word that uh-huh. is getting better and evolutionary computation? Yes, uh, I would think so. I think there is a reason why uh, why all intelligent species, at least as we tend to call it, uh, resort to sexual selection. It can be explained in many different ways. There are certainly technical, well, not technical, but advantages in doing that in terms of fighting, getting rid of the trash in our genomes and so on. That argument has been made. But I do think that things like the problem is, I'll give you an example. Imagine you are uh, a bird of some kind. You get stuck in, in an island with uh, other individuals of your species. The, the food is, uh, there's lots of food and so on. So there is no reason for you to evolve. You are perfectly adapted to that environment and you are not going to evolve and you don't need to, to get smarter. In fact, you can get dumber because you don't need a big brain. Everything is there for you. There are no problems to solve. And in some cases, yes, you can have a recess in that terms. But if you are using uh, sexual selection, then you have to compete. Females have to compete with females uh, for the attention of the males. And the males, and typically that is mostly the case in, in, in nature, the nat- uh, males have to compete between themselves for the attention of, of the female. And this competition can take many different forms. For for instance, direct competition between males with fights and so on. But for instance, peacock feathers, for instance, which are an ornament, they, they are detrimental to, to the individual. They exist because the, the females of the species like it. In the case of peacocks, this is trivial to prove. They only have those long, beautiful feathers during the mating season. They lose them. Because if you are a peacock and you are trying to fly away for a tiger, that huge tail is strongly detrimental. The same happens with paradise birds and, and so on. So why this, does this pertain to evolution? Because females need to be smart to figure out what, which are the best males to mate with, to choose their mating partners. And males also need to be smart to show is uh, indirect or direct displays of fitness and so on. So the simple fact that you have uh, sexual selection does create automatically a competition within the species that can drive evolution in ways that would not be feasible to to occur uh, by, by other means because you don't need to have an adversary, you don't need to... It creates the need for evolution. It also creates... a this is why I, I like it so much. It also creates all this, from more my artistic side or visual side, it does create these beautiful ornaments. It does create these strange variations, these unfeasible animals uh, uh, as, and so on. And, and this is fascinating because in nature, the, the notion of, of being fit is quite abstract. You are fit if your genes survive in the long term. So you are not fit because you are stronger or smarter or more beautiful or whatever. It's all about long-term survival of your genes. 
So this creates a certain, or should I, I put it, subjectivity to the concept of fitness that I, I really enjoy from a more philosophical side of, of things. And at the same time, it does create uh, some ways of coming up with uh, ornamentations and so on. And I find it fascinating that, okay, we like peacock feathers. Let's think about this. We, we do like it. It's not by accident. So there must be some sort of aesthetical basis for this that is pretty much universal among humans and also shared maybe with other species. And that is extremely interesting. That was one of the reasons why I was fascinated with this in the beginning. The idea that aesthetical principles, not all, of course, but some of them could be shared among several species. They are probably strongly related with the way we see, we and other species see and perceive images and so on. And this can be used for, for lots of different things. For instance, for information visualization, you need to understand a little bit uh, on how the brain uh, sees, uh, to how the brain creates images, because seeing is a creative act in, in, in some sense, to be able to, to build effective visualizations, you know. So that's a lot how, how in my mind, which is a little bit weird, things connect one with each other. Uh, so based on that description, you'd think that kind of the mating algorithm, mating choices, selection process is an important kind of variable that distinguishes, you know, one evolutionary approach to another, Yeah, um, yeah. you know, both biologically and computationally. Oh, definitely. I, I strongly believe that. For instance, in most... Well, in canonical evolutionary computation models, it's all about survival of the fittest. So you do roulette wheel selection or, or tournament selection. It doesn't matter. And the probability of being uh, chosen uh, for as mating partner depends entirely on, on your fitness. It's probabilistic. We've tried to, we and the others before us, we, we try to implement methods that include a female mate choice and it, it was the, the easiest one that we could implement. Uh, so, for instance, in one of the models, in the first step, a female is chosen. Uh, okay. So, that in this case, the, the female drives the process. So, the female is chosen according to, to her fitness or its fitness. Okay, I'll, I'll use the Portuguese version. Her fitness and then, a few, for instance, using tournament selection, you randomly pick uh, a set of males, and then the female evaluates the different males. And this is going to be her mating partner. And interestingly enough, this shouldn't work, really, because now you have to evolve to things. You have to evolve a candidate solution to the problem. Uh, the female must be fit to, to a given problem. So you need to evolve a candidate solution. And B, you need to evolve mating preference model, whatever you, you want to call it. So in practice, we do have two, two chromosomes. So since you have to evolve more things, it should be a lot harder because you, you have to solve two different problems, how to evaluate and how to be fit. Interestingly enough, in some of or most of the problems, and we haven't tested uh, thoroughly, there are lots of testings to be done, it works. So in symbolic regression problems, in, in several test beds, we came up to the conclusion, for instance, that this model where, uh, the, in this case, the female has a sort of 
idea. It's a very romantic approach. Each female has uh, this, and I'm not joking, but the way we did it is, is like this. So one chromosome is a candidate solution to the problem. The other chromosome of the female represents her uh, ideal mating partner. So it's whatever the female desires. It's encoded in, in her genes. And the different candidates are compared with this ideal mating partner. And the entire thing undergoes evolution. So these preferences can uh, and are changes throughout time by mutations, crossover, and so on. And this actually works. It works rather well. Uh, it shouldn't because it's, it should be a lot tougher, but the results indicate that it's competitive, that typically you get the same or better performance than canonical approaches. It's very interesting to try to, to understand why, and we don't have a, a good explanation for that. But basically, my, my intuition tells me uh, and, and some tests, it's not just intuition. Uh, the, the ability to evolve your preferences allows you to do cool things during the evolutionary process. So imagine when you are already in, in a later stage of the evolutionary process where individuals are already very good, females are very good. So if the female is very good, you want to mate with a male that won't spoil your genes, that has a little a small impact on the quality of your descendants. And this sometimes implies choosing a mating partner that is quite basic, and in some cases it even has a, a very low fitness, but that won't spoil the genes. And this, this is very interesting to see. We constructed several visualizations about it, and you can clearly see the division of the population. We don't have sexes, by the way. Uh, sexes naturally emerge. So they are just individuals. And if they are picked first, they work as females and otherwise as males. And as evolution goes on, it kind of subdiv naturally subdivides into two groups, a group that we'll call females because they are being selected by their fitness, and the group that we'll call males that are typically not that fit, but that females tend to prefer and they are systematically selected by female mate choice. And, and I find this fascinating, just the emergence of, of sexes, just the division into subgroups, not necessarily sexes or genders, because that, that may be taking the analogy too far. But the way they emerged naturally was totally surprising for, for us because it just happens like this once you give the, the individuals the, the ability to choose the, the mating partners. And it, of course, my wife keeps on explaining to me, see, that this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that I, I had to, to tell that. Also. Is there a way, how can you make that explanation more concrete in the context of a machine learning or you mentioned a regression type of problem? What are... What are the genes? What are the selection strategies? What do okay. all those things correspond to? Okay, so uh, it's easier to explain with uh, symbolic regression, for instance. Okay. So in symbolic regression, we are using genetic programming. It's a, a standard genetic programming approach, pretty much like causative. So we are evolve evolving these expressions, the codes, that when you execute it, you get... Uh, a function uh, over time. So that, that's the type of problem to, to put it 
simple that we are trying to solve. So how do you turn this into a sexual selection model or mate choice model, which I believe it's more appropriate in, in English? Difficult to explain. At this point, I would need to draw, but it, it, it's actually a very easy idea. So imagine that instead of having one program, and this is one of the ways that we do Imagine that instead of having one of these programs generating a curve, let's call it like that, you have two. So the first one, the first curve that you obtain, it's typical symbolic regression. You compare it with a given target. You measure using rhythm square error or whatever, the performance, you assign fitness, that's done. That's easy. The second one. So the second one, it's used to evaluate mating partners. So what you are going to do is you draw this line, which is this ideal thing. And now when a male comes to be judged, you check his candidate solution. It's mating curve. And you simply compare one with the other. So you are comparing the first chromosome that encodes the candidate solution with the second chromosome of the female. Actually, to, to be correct, uh, sorry about that, you are comparing the phenotype resulting from the expression of the first chromosome with the phenotype or the curve uh, resulting from the expression of the second chromosome. We do all of this in the phenotypic space and not at the genotypic space. So we never compare phenotypes, only their expression. And this gives you, of course, we are just comparing two curves. So once this works, you, and it apparently does, you can pretty much apply it to anything you want. How are you comparing the, the two curves? I guess what I got from that explanation was that the first part of that process is it's a kind of a loss error calculation. Yeah. Uh, and in the, sec in, in the second part is also the same thing. So you are comparing the similarity of the curve of the male with the, the curve uh, that expresses the sexual preference of the female. And so you can do, for instance, roots mean square or, or any other measure that you want. Okay, to apply these sort of things, the only thing that you really need is a way of comparing two phenotypes. And if you can create a thesis that makes sense, then you should be able to, to apply it. Having said okay. that, you only apply this to a small number of problems, so I don't know how it scales to different problems. I, I cannot prove that it's general enough, So, uh, but we are going to try to fix that gap in the near future. So The first calculation is comparing the female's or the the first generated curve to the desired curve. Yes. Kind of your idealized error, error relative yeah. to your idealized. And the second is comparing the males to the females' preference. Where does the female exactly. preference curve come from? It's evolved just like the other. So we have no control. And that's why it's difficult to explain because it's a product of evolution. So it's initialized randomly. And then there is no direct evolutionary pressure uh, towards the female preferences. However, there is an indirect one. If they mate with the males and that results in bad offspring, their genes will not survive. 
So there isn't a direct one, but there is an indirect one. And this is enough to evolve preferences, let's call it like that, that are beneficial to, to, to evolution. That doesn't mean that it's choosing the, the fittest, the best, or you simply cannot explain it like that. It's very difficult to understand because in different spots, in different parts of the evolutionary process, it may be choosing totally different things. So, for instance, in the beginning, it may, it may be trying to find the fittest males, but after a while, it may be trying to find something else. Maybe it's just trying to find functions that are compatible. This is, in some sense, also results a bit by the nature of genetic programming, where crossover tends to be very destructive, at least in the later parts of the evolutionary process. So after a while, maybe it's better just to, to prevent destructive crossover than to try to select the fittest one. Mm -hmm. What are some of the ways that you apply this in the machine learning domain? In the machine learning domain, we are trying to apply it now. Okay, uh, to be honest, in evolutionary machine learning, we fight a big problem for, for us, but uh, which is the, the lack of computational resources. We have like eight GPUs or something like that. So we are not Google at all. So this makes the experimentation uh, a little bit more complicated. But I'm, I'm not complaining uh, about that. We will do fine with that. Is the idea that because of the nature of evolutionary computation, your training is multiplied by the number of or the, the breadth or dimensionality of yeah. your evolutionary universe? I'm not sure what the right terms are, but... Yeah, by the size of the population or, or, or something like that. Yes, that does uh, complicate uh, a little bit uh, the, the problem. Uh, and that's also... A big difference between nature and uh, in silico experiments. In nature, we have the entire Earth and you can run millions or billions of individuals at the same time without an extra cost. Well, there is a cost for the environment, but I'm not talking about that. And you need to have computational resources. So it doesn't map directly. Anyway, the, the way we are approaching that that lack of computational resources is a little bit trying to... Let's work with that. So if we have fewer uh, computational resources, we must uh, come up with ways of evolving faster, of being more efficient and so on. We, we can't turn that into an advantage. Of course, I would like to have a lot more, but it's not a huge problem nowadays. We, we can still cope. So what uh, going back to your question, what we are doing now is we are testing it again in, in the image domain. And we, we are trying to, the first thing that we are doing is we have these networks for generating images that combine it with evolutionary, story is long, and we are trying to co-evolve at the same time. So each individual will be actually, if you want to, to be picky about it, three different networks, two of them for generating purposes, and the, the second slash third one, this one on the side, it's going to, evo uh, to evaluate the images generated by other individuals. So in this way, we would have all that we need to theoretically be able to evolve individuals that create images that are attractive 
to other individuals of the same species. And this does probably, there are a few papers written uh, a long time ago about coevolution of images and so on, for instance, for, by Gary Greenfield. But we, what we are expecting to understand out of this is how trends evolve over time, or how they appear, how they evolve, and how they are replaced. Because even from an evolutionary standpoint, you can compete with, let's call it other males, by being better than them at their game or by differentiating and creating something new. And yes, you want to attract a big part of the population, probably, but you can have your own niche, uh, and that niche uh, later on can become more predominant. This is from a more aesthetical or artistic, I prefer the term aesthetical side of view, from a more, I hate the term, but let's call it a practical point of view. We believe that we can do pretty much the same thing for medical image. Uh, we'll see where that goes. I don't have the results. But in theory, the, the, the approach should uh, also be, it can be applied. I'm not sure if it will get good results or not. That only time will tell. Okay. Is all of the work that you do on the computational creativity side focused on the evolutionary oh, no. uh, computation? Or, or is it a, a Venn diagram that has its own? <laughs> <laughs> there is one. There are several. No, the, the stuff that we do in, on computational creativity, okay, every every now and then we use evolution for, but typically use it more for as a strategy that we use within our systems that something that is an end in itself. In the beginning, I did use it a lot to evolve images uh, and so on. But for instance, my students, uh, most of them, well, actually they use it now and then, but they are doing other things. So, for instance, in, in computational creativity, we are mostly interested in stuff like computational aesthetics. That's my personal interest, but also about computer-aided creativity, about uh, new media, um, stuff that is more related with art. And for instance, comparing and contrasting human vision with computer vision and so on. I can tell you a little bit about that later, but also about computational blending, coming up with uh, concept representative symbols, uh, stuff like uh, creating emojis. And, and yes, I have a student, well, this is not his PhD thesis, this is what I tell uh, João Cunha when I, I'm teasing him, I'm telling okay, you are going to be the first guy that this is thesis on creating new emoji, emojis. Imagine you from telling your kids, yes, I'm, I'm the guy, the emoji guy. But for instance, uh, stuff like that, coming up with new emojis. For instance, imagine that, okay, I, I, from memory, uh, I have a good one uh, for, for you. So in his system, uh, he was trying to come up with a visual representation for the concept cat without using the emoji for cat. So by using new WordNet, you can derive a lot of information about cats and the relations and so on. So the system naturally came up with this uh, emoji that I find very interesting, which is a mouse with um, a search, com how do you call it, uh, a loop, uh, magnifier glass, sorry, uh, on top of that. And that's clever, <laughs> you know. Uh, so a cat is something that is searching for, for a mouse. It's, that's the sort of thing that... We, 
it, it's very provocative. Every, we also have another one that is really cool that is about uh, flags and changing uh, the country flag according to something that is happening on the news. So mm -hmm. imagine, okay, imagine that you have... Uh, United States and oil, it could, for instance, and I'm making this up, replace every single star on your flag by a barrel of oil or something like that. And it also does this kind of automatically, let's call it like that. So we have an, another one, which I, I'm really interested on, on that, but it's in the beginning, which is the idea of evolving. Uh, and yes, uh, but here it's not in the evolutionary sense or it can be but evolving interaction so imagine something that learns how you want to interact with it and over time it uh, adapts naturally to the way you, you you interact i don't know if you how old you are did, did you play with arcades uh, and stuff like that arcade machines so oh. yeah I, I would assume so so, for instance, when I was playing in the arcades, every now and then you run out of money and the machine, you know, entered that demo mode. And some of the times you were like simulating that you are playing. So something was happening on the screen and you are moving the joystick and hitting the buttons and so on. So yeah, our current idea is, okay, let's do that. Let's, the computer is playing, the computer is doing something and the user is trying to control what is on the screen. It's not actually controlling, but it's trying to control. And the computer is learning what the inputs of the user are and mapping that to an effect. So you invert all the, the idea of designing interface to something that really gives the ability of the user to maybe we want to control that crazy spaceship by shouting uh, at the mic and that, that's fine you know that's where i want to, to take that and obviously that would be insane at the same time probably extremely useful for people with disabilities with difficulties stuff like that but at this stage we feel comfortable at this level of gameplay, creativity, and so on. It's not the idea maybe in long term can be used for more serious goals, uh, but that's the kind of thing that interests us. We also do lots and lots of experiments with typography and stuff like that because I work with lots of designers. But computational creativity, for me, it's more the fun side where anything goes, I can do whatever I want. I can do artistic projects uh, and have the, I would say, entire freedom, but that's such a thing that never exists. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Penazal, thanks so much for taking time to share a bit about what you're up to. Lots of fascinating stuff and I feel like I need to go dig into evolutionary computation more. It's, it's yeah. Well, ideas I, I I hope it was interesting for you and not extremely confusing because I do digress a lot, but well, I, I did my best, you know, and it was very nice talking to you. Uh, yeah, it really was. Conversation. Thank I enjoyed you. this a lot. Thanks. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.